You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Okay, um, so welcome everybody. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. Um, before we start, I'd just like to acknowledge the Yalak Wilan as the traditional custodians of the land upon which we're meeting today. Uh, the Yalak Utwilan are part of the Bunurong, the one of five language groups making up the Kulin Nation, and we pay our respects to their lands, cultures, and elders past, present, and future. So thank you for joining us for today's M Talk, uh, titled Only As Healthy As Your Postcode. As the name suggests, uh, we'll be looking at the connection between health and the built environment, and with a particular focus on, the, on what capacity we have as planners, academics and designers and policy makers to generate improved outcomes and tackle some of the inequity that exists in this space in cities such as Melbourne. So joining us today, we've got Dr Lucy Gunn from RMIT. We've got Chris Subsky from City of Wyndham Livability Officer. Uh, we've got Claire Boulanger from GTA, formerly RMIT. And we've got Justin Ray, uh, Senior Principal Urban Designer at Tract. Uh, my name's Andrew Thornton. I'm a Senior Town Planner at Tract Consultants. And before we get started, I might just give a very quick overview of uh, Tract's involvement in this space. So going back to 2018, we released a study in partnership with Deloitte Access Economics into uh, health and comparative health outcomes between suburbs in Australia's three largest cities. Um, Whilst the connection between health and the built environment and the spatial inequality that exists is, is pretty well known to us in planning circles, what this study was interesting in doing was actually displaying that and showing us how that inequality exists across a metropolitan area and prompting conversations in that regard. And at Tract, we're now trying to take those principles and apply them at a scale that's more relevant to our everyday practice. Um, so from that context, we're really uh, thankful to have this panel here today to explore this topic and hopefully come out with a, a few new insights into how we can improve things moving forward. Um, so a great place to start here. So in, in the Victorian context, RMIT, Centre for Urban Research, is definitely at the forefront of research, uh, policy tools and the conversation in this space. So we're very thankful to have uh, Dr. Lucy Gunn and also uh, Dr. Claire Boulanger here today. Um, Lucy, maybe you can uh, open us up with a little bit of an overview of what we understand to be the, uh, the principles that make for a healthy built environment and how that relates to the work at RMIT. Okay. Oh. Is it another try? Is it off? We can share. Okay. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> microphone needs warming up as well. Um, so the principles for livability are really built on uh, a number of different things and we've actually come up with a framework for that which is looking at uh, walkability, looking at um, density, looking at public transport, uh, access to um, parks and open spaces as well as having good housing um, and also access to healthy food and minimizing access to alcohol. So there is a framework that we... 
draw upon to um, look at livability in a holistic sense. Um, one of the core components of livability is walkability. And for those of you who are not very familiar with walkability, it's really looking at a combination of features. So it's looking at having good street connectivity. So this is where we look at streets that are well connected, where you have relatively small blocks, that they're much easier to walk around. So um, just as a bit of audience participation, does anyone live in the inner city areas? Oh, quite a few of you, okay. Oh, it looks like we're preaching to the converted. <laughs> so you people are quite lucky because you have good street connectivity. Um, these suburbs were built and designed when walking was the, the key technology for mobility. And of course, they're walkable because they are built for walking distances. They're relatively small. And some of our research, when I talk about our research, I'm actually referring also to Claire's research because we've worked quite closely together. We found something like the average block size was around six or 700 metres, so around. So if you want to walk around the block, it's actually quite an easy thing to do. And what the research shows is that the um, better the street connectivity, the more route choices you have and the easier it is to walk. So that's the first part of, of walkability. Second part is um, having somewhere to walk to, so destinations. And this is where the land use mix comes in. It's really important from a planning perspective to get that right. People need food, they need services, they need to be able to go to healthcare and social infrastructure. And those things are critical. So having good street connectivity helps get you there, but you need to go somewhere. So destination is that endpoint for that for those trips so that's very important but of course the, the perhaps the third and, and most important part and the most contentious part is density which uh, Australian cities don't do particularly well so our inner city areas are becoming more higher density and there is more infill density there. But density is important because it puts people in, in the right place. So without people, um, businesses fail. So uh, there's a real imperative to have density at a higher level and that's really core to walkability, which is also core to livability. And I think I'll just leave it there because I, I know there's some other people who you might like to talk to. Yep. Fantastic. Um, so some of the key things Lucy's raised there are really grounded in connectivity, density, and having points of interest to, to encourage people to get out and, and actually use their streets. Um, we know that's working really well in the inner city, but looking at some of our newer communities, such as the city of Wyndham, um, that experience might be a little bit different. So, um, Chris, you're the livability officer at city of Wyndham, and we, we understand there's some nice crossover between the principles of livability and healthy suburbs. Um, could you maybe give a bit of an overview of the, uh, the experiences out in Wyndham and how council's looking to address some of those currently? So the first question, who lives in outer suburbs? Growth areas, anyone from growth areas? Casey, Hume, Whittlesea, Wyndham, nobody? Wow. I have a chance to convert some people. <laughs> um, I don't know whether you guys get out of the inner city. Um, <laughs> when you do, you realize we don't have many walkable neighborhoods because of the low density development has been going on for decades in Melbourne. So, and it's continuing. So there's nothing new. I can't really see much of a development. But there's, there's some people coming in into different city councils um, with new ideas and they're really more open to new developments, creating more medium, maybe high density areas. However, it's not easy. It's because of the PSP, so the state government controls the development. And this is where the RMIT comes in with livability principles and try to lobby the state government. Uh, it's a local government, the issue with local government is 
there are things we can do and other things we can't because of the politics. And what we can do and where there are opportunities to create more walkable neighborhoods, for example, or more bikeable or neighborhood is mostly more around activity centers. And I think this is where the local governments are looking into. So what can they do? How can they create structure around activity centers? How to locate activity centers across the suburbs? So it's easier for people to walk to the destination, walk to the train station, these kinds of developments. Um, looking into maybe trying to move away a little bit from the low density, more towards medium density development. But this will take a very long time. So that's... So definitely a, a, almost a tale of two cities here with uh, health performance and livability. Mm. Um, Claire, your work doing modelling between Greenfield and, and Brownfield um, sites was particularly insightful in this regard. So I think the principles that you, you've looked at in your study kind of bridge that gap between what's working in a, in a city or a more developed uh, context and somewhere that's a completely new community like the growth areas. Um, can you maybe um, just give a little bit of an overview of what we understand the role of context to be. Um, yes, <laughs> Is that all right? Yeah. Um, so that was a research project we did, I think, a couple of years ago. Uh, uh, 2017, oh but yeah. it was phenomenally fast. <laughs> Normally these papers take a long time to get through, but this one was, what, inside a year? Yeah, um, so anyway, the, the, the sort of study we wanted to do was to, to put a dollar value around um, what is the cost of developing a new suburb out in the greenfield versus redeveloping an infield development, um, so in terms of infrastructure cost, but also converting that into a dollar value for healthcare cost. Because we know that depending on how we design the environment, then people are going to be more or less likely to ride the bike, to walk around, and long term, all those sort of activities that you do will prevent a number of disease. So if we can translate that sort of pipeline, so if we design it this way, then we get the sort of healthy outcomes, then we prevent X number of disease, how much does it save to you know, society in terms of healthcare cost? And what the study really highlight is that um, it's always a better solution to kind of move to the infield. Uh, so sort of redeveloping areas that were either used for in, uh, sort of industrial uses or that need to be retrofitted. And the reason is that there's already some strong structure around that. So you're closer to the city centre, so that reduces the time people need to travel to go to jobs. And that has to do because in Melbourne, which is a very concentric sort of city, all the jobs tend to be, or the majority of jobs tend to be in the CBD. Um, so people tend to commute inward. Uh, so by placing the sort of development in that middle ring, um, then we reduce that. But also there's already some existing sort of street networks, there's shopping that already exist, shopping centres, so you can actually kind of strengthen all that stuff. When you roll out a greenfield development, you have to create everything from scratch. So it's everything that you see from building houses, building schools, building hospitals, but also underground. You have to bring the sewage system, you have to bring the electrical system, um, the NBN and so forth. So that has a massive cost. And, and I think I guess a comment, um, building on what Chris was saying around governance, I think it's not just the responsibility of government to create healthy um, suburbs in the outer or in the middle range. It's also that sort of um, the industry has to take 
responsibility there. The, um, the construction standards in Australia are absolutely appalling. Um, coming from Europe and I've lived in Vietnam, I've lived in Japan, I've seen like better insulation in Vietnam than I've seen here in Australia. Like I've never been that cold in my whole life in Australian winter. And I'm like, what the hell? Like, you have single glazing windows. What's the actual fuck? I mean, we're going through climate change. Like, how is that acceptable? Like, you know, I think this is something we should take seriously, that how is that okay to still build houses that cost a fucking fortune to heat up, that get boiling hot during summer, and that runs on tons of energy? Like, that's not sustainable, but we still allow that to happen. And that's not okay. Like, I mean, the industry has to, you know, take some responsibility. And I don't know, maybe one day we'll have a trial against, you know, who caused climate change. And I bet you I'm going to be putting my finger and say, you guys need to build better housing stock. So I think, yeah, the industry has to be part of that too. Yep. I think that's a nice uh, curvy point to throw to Justin now. So Justin... (laughs) Um, works across a broad range of urban design projects, working with local government and, and council on their delivery. Um, Justin, I, was, I suppose a question for you would be, is the connection between health, livability and the built environment something that is a, a core principle of, of projects that we're seeing across Melbourne or is it something that maybe isn't fully focused on? Um, I think I also work with flies. I've got flies all over me at the moment. Um, <coughs> It's become a focus um, for some... So if we talk about development industry and local government working together, that's a reason uh, around the issue of health and well-being in new communities in particular. It's a reasonably recent um, phenomenon, but it certainly has been on the scene for sort of a decade um, for some developers. It's, and it's usually not policy-led. It's been, if you go back to um, early examples of master plan community projects that are out in growth areas like Caroline Springs and um, more recently a project called Salandra Rise that's in Casey, so there's an example from the west and the east. They're actually both projects where there was a heavy focus on um, active mobility and health and well-being. The Heart Foundation were quite involved in Caroline Springs um, from a testing perspective to actually inform um, the design process and the master planning process, but equally to um, evaluate what was going on. And I was lucky enough to be involved in sort of both of those projects. Um, In the Caroline Springs example, it was probably the first instance for me of, of starting to see a rigorous kind of thought process around um, the planning of communities for mobility in particular. I mean, the focus then was really about cycling and walking. How do we... We were delivering an enormous um, open space network, but we weren't necessarily offering the behavioural cues within the environment to encourage people to go, oh, wow, maybe, maybe I can walk to school today rather than having mum drive me, you know, um, or dad drive me. Maybe I can wander to the shops um, without jumping on a bus or jumping in a car. And at the time, the culture, and I'm talking about 2003, the culture was heavily weighted towards the car, no different to lots of communities today. 
But we were putting the tools and the cues in place. When I say cues, I mean things like signage, thinking about wayfinding, thinking about um, the logistics of getting people to walk out of their front door rather than turning right to the garage, turning left and wandering down the footpath, setting up neighbourhoods to feel good as a walking experience. So that turned me on to this whole notion of not what we create, but why we create it and who do we create it for. So switching on the focus towards users and human experience of environments rather than thinking about the things that we pump the money into. So um, it's a real design conundrum. Often designers get very focused on the things they create, but we forget who it's for sometimes. And it's, it's actually all about human beings and hopefully the natural things that are out there that, that really, that, that's why we do what we do. You know, we, we don't build beautiful pavilions like this to sit alone in space. They're for people to use and enjoy. And it's no different for cities and it's no different for new, for new communities. So I think from 2003 onwards, I've seen a steady progression in the thinking around um, creating environments for people to enjoy. And when we enjoy environments, and we know when there's a festival on in the middle of Melbourne, it's a fun, engaging, interesting city to be in, we get out and walk. So simple, a simple way of thinking about it is the more fun you put in, the more people you get walking. So why not do that in every community we, we, we create? So thinking about the content of open space, the content of our parks and streets, the enjoyment of all of those things. If we're going to enjoy it, we're more likely to use it. We're more likely to be out in amongst the natural spaces, the urban spaces, get out of our homes, whether they're on big blocks of land or small blocks of land. That public realm experience is, to me, what makes cities fun. Cities that aren't fun are, are cities that we're a lot less likely to enjoy and a lot we're probably a lot less likely to be um, uh, experiencing as healthy places. So I kind of think fun and health walk hand in hand, and for me it gets back also to children. So if we set up children to have healthy habits, to be people who choose walking over or cycling or active mobility over the passive sitting in the back seat of the car experience that, that often children in inner city as much as growth areas experience, um, we're going to end up with societies that are just geared up to be healthy. You know, it'll be a simple choice. People will choose not to own cars. We're already seeing that happening within the generation who are coming through. Um, we're going to see a generation of people who simply choose to be far more active. And if we move, we're healthy. You know, it's it's... Very simple stuff, but I think if you think of it from a user perspective and not objectify um, the things that we're out there creating and always focus on the why, the purpose for building what we build, then we're going to get it right. You know? So I, I think research is starting to align with that. We're seeing developers engage universities, and Melbourne University and RMIT have both been involved in studies into, obviously cities and city environments, um, and I've seen private sector engage universities to do five-year studies into the well-being of new communities. 
all of that is great stuff. We're starting to build a rigorous sort of pool of knowledge around what works. But intuitively, every one of you here knows what, we know what works, don't we? We know that this environment works for getting us out and doing exactly what we're doing right now. And if we all do this, we're going to be a whole lot healthier as human beings. And I think mental health is the other spin-off um, of the last decade as well. Thinking about psych psychological well-being, new suburbs had terrible stats 10, 15, 20 years ago around high levels of suicide, um, high levels of violence, domestic violence was off the charts in places like even Caroline Springs in its early days. Pretty scary stuff. Um, not wanting to be alarmist, but it was real. And so that's the other element that has become a real focus is how do we create psychologically well humans who make good choices and choose to actually connect with one another than, um, than perhaps indulge in negative activity and negative behaviour. And, um, you know, it's probably enough from me for now. <laughs> Andrew's giving me the subtle wind-up. Well, I think there was definitely a few good points in there that we will come back to, but a lot of insight as well. I think looking at this, there's, there has been, uh, you know, we're seeing attract a lot of growth in the conversation with clients and councils towards these principles that Justin's talking about. Um, unfortunately, it's not necessarily this, the status quo for all projects, and we're probably working through that as well. Um, uh, looking at this problem, it's something that, that for us is quite a multifaceted issue. There's a lot of ways that we need to come across this from a governance perspective, from a planning and design perspective, and uh, for those reasons, it's important to understand how we're currently approaching that. So um, one, one quite interesting thing that's happened lately, um, so at the city of Wyndham, Typically, councils will, will operate in silos with different departments, and there's not necessarily a great deal of conversation between, and that can get in the way of, uh, I suppose, coordinated outcomes towards uh, difficult issues like health or livability. Um, that's where Chris's role at Wyndham is, is quite interesting. So he sits between uh, the, the various uh, departments of council to, in, to put forward integrated policy. Um, Chris, in terms of, of this new role that you've adopted, which is quite a new role for councils in Victoria, um, how important do you find the, the connectivity between departments to be in actually generating uh, better outcomes? So as you mentioned, so this, uh, the role started in June, so it's only seven months old, and I can't think of any other role in any of the local governments. I, I'm not aware of it, of the 31 municipalities across Greater Melbourne, so probably the only one. It's look, kind of positions in urban futures, so urban planning, built environment structure, cuts across various departments. It goes into community infrastructure development with all the issues and planning and timelines and PSPs, uh, crossing over to Spots and Rec. That was my previous role, so where I started two years ago and created the Active Windham strategy. That was pretty much the beginning when I realized people don't really talk to each other across the departments, major issue. So I had to start from scratch pretty much because even physical activity is a multidisciplinary area. And so is livability pretty much. So I have the same issues that I have to deal with. But I think that applies to most city councils, especially in growth areas. There's so, much, there's so many things happening in growth areas, so many projects. It's just, people just don't have time to read documents, um, 
so much development happening and to have someone to to cut across the different departments is very important and this is what's been happening slowly and that's one of the roles and it gives us opportunity just to look into especially the health aspect and this is what is it about here how to integrate the health aspect into built environment and livability and that's a bit difficult because historically health is attached to state government public health this is where all the policies and frameworks happen so there are not many people I can actually talk to when it comes to health again gives us opportunity to recreate something yeah. fantastic um, Claire I might return to your research um, earlier this week um, I heard um, the Lord Mayor Sally Cap uh, speaking at a panel at RMIT um, and one of the things that she spoke about was the need to um, look at our business cases for, for things for, from a city of Melbourne context, but starting to actually bring um, the costs and benefits of things like livability and health into our, into our business cases. Um, what strikes me as important in the work that, that you and Lucy did going back a few years is the actual costing of, of uh, healthy design in terms of not just economics, but life years as well. Um, it, as in terms of a policy tool, in the time since that study is launched, have you seen some traction gained in terms of um, understa better understanding the costs of health? I can answer that question too if you need. Yeah. Let me jump in. Do you want me to jump in? Yeah, look, uh, things is definitely a, a growing interest and there's definitely um, more data available to conduct some, some better research and, and the modelling is getting better. Um, there's definitely an interest in calculating the sort of cost of the way we design cities from different sort of angles, whether it's cost associated with transport um, at the individual level, but also for the local council level. So I work in transport now and like a big sort of question the clients will ask us is the cost of congestion um, and also the cost of, um, so having lots of cars on the road will make the roads um, deteriorate quicker, so they cost more to to replace. So it's kind of like trying to put that into the big picture and say, okay, well, how does that switch if we have more public transport, if we remove car, but then how does that impact on health as well? Because beyond the physical activity, we have to think broader. Um, so we now have research showing the impact of um, exposure to constant noise. So living close to a freeway and having this sort of like background noise constantly will trigger some sort of um, mental health issues, uh, anxiety, depression, and so forth. Um, there's also the air quality issues. Um, and, and the research is quickly evolving in terms of like estimating what is the threshold to develop those conditions, but we also have lots of data now that is a bit grim, but we know how much it costs society when someone gets sick, you know. Um, so we talk about chronic disease in that sphere because um, Australia is a lucky country with... Um, not so much communicable disease, so disease that you catch from mosquitoes or from pool water, but what we get a lot here is uh, lifestyle disease, so chronic disease. And the tricky thing with those diseases is that they, um, they don't kill you fast. You live with them for a long time, but your quality of life deteriorates. And so that's what we're really interested in costing as well, because it's, it's a very interesting metric when you can show that being exposed to a certain environment, and you talked about children, and, and I think that's something I'm really passionate about, is that what we're seeing in Melbourne is that the, um, the places that are affordable where young families can move to, 
if you match that against the data that's been released in the urban observatory, so if you look at a livability map, you'll see that the most affordable places are the least livable. Um, and that's where a lot of children are going to uh, spend their early years and develop their habits. And a lot of them won't have the opportunity to ride their bike or to walk around just because it's not safe to do so, because there's nowhere to go to. Um, and so can you imagine what, you know, 8, 10, 12 years of those sort of habits are going to do to your health? Like, it's really hard to change those ingrained things. So your, your quality of life is already sort of um, impacted by that. So I think this is a really important question to, to consider. And, and, it's, um, and it's good to see the research in that sphere evolving rapidly. Um, and, and Lucy might have more comments on the sort of modelling aspect or... Yeah, so I think it might just be of interest for you to know the areas that we looked at. So one of those areas was in um, Wyndham, which was Truganina. Uh, so looking at the Truganina South Precinct Structure Plan, which includes the Allura Estate. And the other area was Altona North, which is the infill development one. So when it comes to looking at um, the economic value that came out of it, um, and also the health benefits that came out of it, it amounted to a difference of one month of life um, extra that you live if you live in Altona North, which is the infill development, where you have greater density, better access to destinations, better public transport, everything better. And the reason it was better on top of being a nicer development was also because it drew upon a nicer environment around it. So it was making use of the existing infrastructure, which is a point that I think Claire had made earlier and also you too, um, Chris. So that was an important aspect of the, um, the work that we did. But the question you had originally was really about that sense of how much of this is that economic cost-benefit analysis, how much of that's being picked up more broadly. Um, and I wanted to kind of add that there's an issue with the people in governance and also the policymakers who make these policies because they're not necessarily making them um, with that hat on because they don't have the evidence to, which is why that paper was so important because it starts to bring in this idea of, well, here's the value for this very small group of people, which was, we looked at 21,000 people, population that would be living either in an infill site or on the edge of the city where there's less amenity, a less infrastructure, no public transport. And there's still no public, not much public transport out there. And that estate, Allura, um, still hasn't got a town centre. So they can't even go shopping. They have to... <laughs> there's one guy that's um, in some of our qualitative research said that he had to go next door in... Um, he had to drive to get his hair cut and it annoyed him because he couldn't go locally because there was nothing there yet. So it's coming, and this is another problem, is that there's, uh, on top of policy, then the policy is having low density, and there's also a lag in how we implement these things. It takes time to create good suburbs, and it takes time to put in the public transport and all those ingredients that make an area livable, and unfortunately, it takes time in the growth areas the most, because they are the newest, and they have the less... Um, that they're planned that way, unfortunately. So I think that's a big problem, which I don't know how we solve it, other than providing more evidence that helps make decisions change. And they are changing. But <coughs> do the people listen to it? Yes. So <laughs> I can question. say this, yes, because, um, for example, the Department of Environment, Land, Water and Planning have put out their 20-minute neighbourhood initiative. So this is this idea that you can go from your home to, a, um, to get what you need within 20 minutes. So um, within close proximity, and it's around 800 metres is what they're basing it on, and that's based on our research. 
Um, the Plan Melbourne Refresh has also lifted its de uh, dwelling density targets from 15 dwellings per hectare, which is painfully low, to an also relatively low 20 dwellings per hectare, but they do state even higher densities around activity centres. So this idea of raising densities, which provides more people, which then has more demand for all of those sort of shops and services that help keep the economy afloat, um, is starting to come in through the policy, which is one of those levers that helps with the delivery. But there's still a lag in delivery, and I think that's a big problem that we need to be pushing a bit harder on, which obviously takes a bit of money. Um, I might follow up then with another question for you. So it's been a, a big week for RMIT with the launch of the Australian Urban Observatory, which is a, a, essentially a digital platform for visualising um, data relating to health and livability, um, which is definitely worth um, people's interest if they want to check it out. Wow. <laughs> I have five of these. <laughs> um, oh. okay. I have four of these. Hot property. <laughs> Um, so I have a postcard. That's In good. fact, I have five postcards. Um, so this is for Beaconsfield Upper, and its livability index is 89, which I can tell you is is bad. It's not good. Yeah. Right, sorry. No, no, that's great. Um, so this, is, to me, this is a really interesting tool that will potentially help inform not just policymakers, but also planners, uh, developers, all the way through to the community as to what uh, you know what the actual experience of health is like in their suburb. And uh, I think it aligns quite well um, at a different scale with a another tool that was created um, by yourselves um, last year, which was the Livability Scorecard, um, which I think we also have a copy of. <laughs> we also have a copy of. Yeah. I, have, I have a few more of these, actually, so um, we'll pass those around too. Yeah. Um, well, I was hoping, Lucy, maybe you can give us just a little bit of an overview. It seems there's a trend here that um, RMIT is looking to take this beyond research and actually develop practical tools to better inform and influence the outcomes at the end of the, the process here. And to me, that's quite an interesting progression in this, in this whole uh, discussion. So it'd be interesting to hear your thoughts on how that's going. Uh, yes, I agree. I think they are some interesting set of tools. Um, I'll start with the Australian Urban Observatory, which we launched on Wednesday, which has been a massive, massive... Um, exciting event for us. So the Urban Observatory uh, contains 23 different measures or indicators um, based on livability. So it includes those different indicators that I mentioned earlier. So it talks about the livability index itself, walkability, access to public open space, transport and so on. It's a whole stack of different things. And what it does is has objectively measured data. So this is data that is based on what you see on the ground through open access uh, data sources. And it's measuring it at SA1 level, which is a very fine grain, also at suburb level and local government level. And that data can be used to find um, areas where there is spatial inequity, which is really just a, fa a fancy term for saying areas where there is need. Areas that are not performing as well as other areas, you can find them and then you can make that decision on whether you want to bring them up to a certain standard. And some of those standards are what you would find in a livability checklist here, which was developed last year as part of our Centre for Research Excellence in Healthy Livable Communities. So these, uh, this scorecard is talking about, again, the key features of livability. Um, and based on the research that we've done at RMIT, and that includes Claire's work too, um, all of our work, uh, there's all sorts of different sort of measures that you can benchmark against to see if your area is performing well. 
Um, I think we're, uh, an important part of that conversation is what do we mean by area? Because you wouldn't necessarily use this scorecard for very fine-grained areas. So my SA1, for example, so I was having a look at the data in the Urban Observatory on Wednesday when we launched the website, and I, I wanted to compare where I lived to where my sister lived because I wanted to lord it over her that where I lived was better. But it's not. <laughs> on almost all of the indicators except for public transport and public open space where... Where I live, I'm off the charts. I've got great public transport, so I can get to work, and uh, lots of public open space, so I can I can walk the dog. But where my sister lives, she lives um, in the inner northern suburbs, and she's got great access to a whole stack of destinations, so she, she can party on. She can just walk to a, to a restaurant, whereas for me, it's a bit harder. But this is... In my case, you wouldn't necessarily change that because I live close enough to other things anyway. It's when you look at the growth areas, you can see that there's a huge disparity, not so much against SA1, but against these suburban areas and then local governments as well. And that's where you know that the government needs to be putting money in to lift those areas in certain ways. So more public transport would be the most obvious one, for example. So that's why these sorts of checklists are quite helpful, but you need to be careful at what sort of geography you're looking at. You don't need to go right the way down, but if you're interested in a certain community, you probably would. And that's the benefit of having data. It helps you make good decisions and put your investment in the right places. Um, one area that we've seen a perhaps comparable tool in planning over the last 10 or so years is in sustainability, looking at things like Green Star or BESS. Um, and they're obviously applied at, well, for, they are applied at a, a much uh, smaller scale, so at the actual project level. Um, I'm interested, Justin, in your views, how a tool such as this scorecard might assist on, on projects to actually set some key principles in place and um, give, I suppose, local government and also uh, planners and urban designers as advocates something to be, um, I suppose, benchmarking against. Is that something you'd see as a, a useful tool? Um, I think at this stage, if we look at ourselves as being on a, a sort of a learning trajectory with with these principles and our understanding of really what sorts of environments are best for us. And I think that that's a, that's a learning curve that's been um, perhaps going since Melbourne was founded, but we're sort of starting to reel back from, you know, the 50s and the car-dominated suburbs that were created in the 50s. So I would almost say any tool that is backed by the rigour of um, research and secondly, any tool that has a focus on the user, and not all tools do, some are very planning-led. And ultimately, I think the tools have to um, be really user-friendly so that um, it's not just governors and policy makers and designers with technical kind of knowledge who can understand the tools, but more importantly, the communities who are impacted by, benefited by the tools. Because the thing that I've learned over the, over the years of particularly building new communities is that at some point everyone exits and the community's left. And often it's the communities that can harness the resources that have been created during the building of that community, whether it's policy, toolkits, the physical spaces, the physical place that's left behind. It's ultimately the community who'll drive the success of their own neighbourhood, their own chunk of the city, their own street. And we kind of all know that to be true. You know, we either live in good streets where we know everyone and we're out there enjoying each other's company, or we live in a street where we don't see the neighbours. They duck in and duck out and 
there's no sort of social connectivity, but we try and create places where people are enabled. And when they're enabled, they're, they're healthier people. They're more likely to care about Bob down the road who they haven't seen for a few weeks who might be ill or elderly. They're more likely to engage in the sort of principles that the research might be starting to point us towards. Um, so I think that would be the second caveat, is making sure that we write these tools with the user in mind and the end user is always the community at the end. We all get to walk away, except for the people who live there. So, If I can make a comment as well on sort of like the industry. So I recently moved to um, consultancy after starting my career as a researcher. So I'm kind of like learning a whole new world. And, and I guess when I was teaching at RMIT, I, I did a course which was all about um, designing healthy, livable communities. And, and what I was really trying to get them is that be um, collaborative. And, you know, what, what Chris is doing is amazing. It's like bring all the department together because a healthy, livable suburb is a result of good transport, good housing, good education policy, good public health. Like, all those plans, all those action plans have to talk to each other. Um, and I now work in, in transport consultancy, and, and I realise it's even further than that. Like, we need to train our engineer. We need to train a transport engineer what the determinant of health are. Like, I gave a talk to my, to my office, and I could see eyes falling out of their heads. And I'm like, what? I do health stuff now? Yeah, you're a transport. Like, you're in transport, you do health stuff. Like, what you design is going to have an impact on health. You're shaping people's life. I think, you know, that's something I'm really passionate about, is that if you get any career where you're going to have an impact on buildings, urban design, transport design, you have a responsibility of care. You have a responsibility of care for the people, for the communities, but also for the planets, for the ecosystem. Like, you have to care about that. So we need to instill that into engineering degree. And I think that's very important that this translation between that you know, research that we're doing goes beyond just the urban planning degree, but also get taught to civil engineer, uh, transport engineer, and all that stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that's a pretty good segue into what might be some of the key challenges that we're looking at in this space. So I think we, we appreciate that some areas, uh, obviously, the, the principles are being applied with, with greater success. Some places, there are a lot of challenges stacked up against actually designing and implementing healthy communities. And it goes beyond the principles that we're putting in place to factors that are sometimes outside our control. Um, one thing we, that's been spoken about today is the timing or, or programming of communities. So, uh, you know, if, a, if we can put all of the principles in place, but it takes 20 or 30 years for that community to actually, uh, you know, manifest and become a healthy community, are we doing our jobs well enough? And that's probably a question back to ourselves. Um, one of the other things that comes up uh, through our work at Tract is things, um, you know, unintended um, requirements that might, uh, I suppose, uh, set aside an outcome that would have promoted a, a better, a better uh, design for health. So one thing that we see in growth areas is um, authority and road requirements that when you get all of your servicing and your road widths and everything in place, it can sometimes squeeze out the capacity to have a canopy tree in that, in that street. And even if those principles are in place from the local government level or state level, 
when it comes down to the actual push and shove of how much can you fit within a certain width with all of those requirements. Sometimes, unfortunately, it's the trees that um, are being removed. So I think maybe the question open to the panel is what are some of the, the challenges that are either um, you know, unforeseen or, or more direct that are, um, that are getting in the way here? I think it's a bottom line. I think that the people who are charged at delivering a lot of um, these new areas and also uh, buildings, for example, have different... When you talk about it academically, it would be called an objective function. But what that means is that if you're a developer, it's your bottom line that matters. It's the profit margin that's important to you. What happens with your residents after you leave is not your problem. It's their problem. And I think that, that that's what I think Claire was saying just before as well, and also Justin. That's a massive problem. To, for a developer to build something and then withdraw knowing fully that what they build has massive consequences for the long-run health of the residents who actually buy into it um, is something that is externalised back onto those residents. And I think that's a problem. They take the money and they run. But not all developers do that. Robert's Day, for example, um, we work quite closely with them. Um, they're very interested in using evidence to build um, nice, good suburbs. And there is value in building good suburbs. There's value in gooding value in building good developments, it's not just in terms of health, there's a resale value as well. And that's been shown over and over again in terms of the academic work. There's a price um, premium to houses that are located in good areas. So I think developers can do better. I'm going to point the finger at you, Chris. I think local governments can do better. Um, <laughs> I've heard some painful stories about local governments knocking back relatively good developments that are innovative, that are perhaps more walkable, and they knock them back because of the bottom line. We don't have a budget to mow the lawn for four separate parks, which might benefit the, the community better to have four parks that link together, one that suits children, one that suits older people who don't want to listen to screaming children, one that's good for um, adults who want to use the hydraulic equipment. There's room for innovation, but it gets stopped by the bottom line. And the story I heard that it was too expensive to mow the lawn in four separate parks. So they went with one big park that only benefited one pocket in the development. Um, and I've, I've heard that a few times. I've also heard uh, another funny story, which was uh, they tried to do, a developer tried to do a nice linear park, so putting in trees and making it look pleasing, aesthetic, to have houses facing onto a green walkway. Uh, and of course, all the amenities, such as the rubbish pickup, was at the back of the house. But council didn't like this because the, the rubbish truck couldn't fit through the laneway. They didn't have enough turning room. And the developer did have turning room, but it was too innovative for council to sign off on it. So there's something wrong about moving forward with innovation, but there's something wrong about putting the bottom line first and, and externalising health impacts and other impacts on people's lives uh, without consideration of how this comes back, particularly to the government, which is what we're well aware of. I'm going to just jump in there and talk a little about... Um the future, which is a which is always a happy place. Um, so, on the yeah, absolutely. So I'm I'm absolutely optimistic about the way that we're now going about designing cities, and there are a whole range of really interesting things that I think um, were captured in in those statements. Um, on costing and cost analysis, there are some really fantastic organisations out there now who engage in an accounting process called full cost accounting. So they start to think about cities, and this is partly what the research has also been about, obviously, 
but they start to think about cities and work for clients who are interested in all of the costs and the benefits associated with what they do, but particularly the costs. So full cost accounting covers everything from the natural costs and natural impact of a project through to the social, through to um, the, the energy quotients, through to um, water costs, etc. And in some ways, you're talking about the full cycle of a, a city in a circular sense and understanding um, accounting beyond the traditional bottom line, the single bottom line. So that's a really positive thing. And, and it helps us as designers start to um, build a business case for really great design outcomes that, that result in, um, in broader benefits. So that's one, one thing that I think is really exciting. We're also starting to kind of design, um, and we sit with a school of other consultants and thinkers like Robert Stay in thinking about, um, and, and the developers that we work with, but thinking about completely new sorts of neighbourhoods. So rather than, rather than a focus on, um, on obviously the car, we now start to think about walkable humans as being the highest order of user in any new growth area neighbourhood. And we're working with Development Victoria right now on a neighbourhood where we're, we're rethinking the model completely. And, and it's not about necessarily looking back to the past, but it's interesting because the end result is often quite similar to some of the very nice inner city neighbourhoods that I think we enjoy in Melbourne. But the twist, and the really nice twist to that, is the complete focus on passive solar orientation, um, microclimate, creating better microclimates within streets, thinking about the energy performance, the water performance, the natural eco ecology that we can regenerate and create through a project. So there's this dialing up of neighbourhood design where we're seeing a broad, broad range of benefits. And I think one of the biggies is, um, is creation of ecological resources. Um, so uh, that we see communities that are fostering nature uh, in, their, in their very fibre and their very grain, their, um, their design in a way that we've never seen before. And they're real places that are being designed and will be built in the next five to ten years. And in, in terms of the evolution of cities, that's pretty fast. You know, Melbourne's been around a long time, so we have the benefit of sitting here and enjoying an environment that's been here for a very long time. So time has a real role to play in this, and whilst we can focus on five and ten year increments, they're tiny increments in terms of the evolution of places. So I think we're going to enjoy seeing a whole raft of amazing neighbourhoods come online in Australia and certainly they are internationally and we've got some terrific examples to draw on where um, we're going to see some things happening that we've never seen before. Um, and that's exciting. So I'm actually hugely optimistic about where we're headed um, because I think we're starting to get the equations right. Nature first, people first, not cars, not things. So happy days, I think. I think, I think there's some, some really good points in there as well about the direction we are taking the conversation here. I think there's probably also a few points that Claire's got about the, um, the less optimistic future that, sh that could be explored. So I might pass over to you. I don't know if it's a less optimistic, but I think we shouldn't be complacent. I mean, look at us. Like, 
very wealthy, we're well fed, we're all pretty, pretty healthy. Um, we all agree that we should design healthy neighborhoods. Like, we're all on the same page. I mean, it's an easy conversation. Like, you're not going to throw rocks at me, are you? Like, you know, it's pretty easy. I think we need to take that conversation to the other suburbs. We need to take that conversation to the people who are not yet convinced. I mean, there's still this image in Australia that to make it, you have to be white, straight, have two and a half kids, um, two cars, you know, like leave this house. Like it's such a caricature, but this is what's shown everywhere in the media. If you look at it, that's, that's what it is. And, and that is cultivated. And a lot of people aspire to that and think, believe that this is what is going to bring joy and happiness and this is a marker of success. They completely overlook the fact that it takes three hours to go to that house by car, that they get stuck in traffic, they're exposed to poor air quality every day, they don't get any physical activity, they're too tired, too stressed to cook when they get home. Um, all those sort of stuff get completely overlooked. Um, so I think it's our responsibility as well for us who have that knowledge, who understand the sort of like complex uh, pathway between the way we design cities and the health, to take that conversation to those who need it the most. Because we need to educate more people to understand, hold on, I'm living in a place that is shaping my life in a negative way. I need to go back to my local government. I need to go back and complain about this because it's not fair. But unless we educate those people, this is not going to happen. I mean, we will still be sitting there having this nice conversation and just be like, yeah, yeah, this is cool, isn't it? But we're not changing anything, are we? Um, actually, just to jump in there, that's exactly what the residents of Salander Rise did to get their first bus. They had to lobby for it, and it was a, a little community bus that they had to get for themselves. It wasn't public transport in the sense that it was um, driven by the government. It was driven by the residents out of desperation because they just wanted to get to the train station and to move around their, their local area. So that's very important. And actually, to, to reiterate that, that importance was um, highlighted by Sally Cap at the launch the Australian Urban Observatory, she said the same thing. Uh, we need to have a democratic voice, this idea that people understand what these issues are and can put their hand up and be the squeaky wheel because the squeaky wheel gets the oil. So, yeah. Um, Chris, maybe an interesting point for you to weigh in there. Um, in terms of planning for livability in the city of Wyndham, is the community's voice quite a strong aspect of that uh, program? And, and if so, are you seeing an alignment between what they're seeking and perhaps some of the principles we've been discussing today? It's definitely getting stronger, and the city council is listening to them, especially the last five years. It's this whole listening to the community and getting some information about satisfaction. They do service on an annual basis and try to integrate it into the framework, into the 2040 vision. It's all part of it. And you can even see it across the departments, how many people work on the floor and on the ground with the community. So that's definitely a major develop in that direction. Um, the other, we were talking about, you know, beating up the local government. Local government should do something. Then when I, around local government officials, they beat up the state government. So yeah, there are always some people to blame. Just, Everybody understands. They if say you think no about evidence, so yeah, it comes back to research. <laughs> just think about uh, precinct structure plans, the PSPs, the greenfields. 
local government is just one, one stakeholder. I don't know, the 10 plus stakeholders. So just have to understanding, we are just one part of it. There's so many different stakeholders in the development. So to create livable communities, healthy communities, is a major effort of many stakeholders. So <coughs> academics would need to really convince all the others important, powerful people to make the change. And uh, we can listen to the community, community tells us things. I have to say, we have to a bit un understand, maybe that's the last point. Um, inner city community, outer suburbs community are very different. There's lots of politics, we all know that. Councillors want to get elected. They listen to community and sometimes the community, so the kind of bottom up approach instead of top down, tells us something else that is not really compatible sometimes with livability checklists. You know, or the concepts that it's, uh, other people, academics create. So it's a bit, there's the gap. There's a gap and especially in outer suburbs. And I think that applies to Casey and all the other growth areas. So that's the challenge here. So we don't want to make residents angry by changing something because we believe these are the principles, we need to apply that. That works in many other countries where the, it's more of a autocracy, dictatorship, central planning style. Um, not so much in Australia and in some other countries. Uh, so we have to consider that, whatever we create. I think you, you've really raised some of the, like, the key complexities with this. It's a problem that, you know, it's the community needs to be involved, multiple levels of government and through academia and practice, it's, it needs to come from all angles. Um, to add one more layer of complexity to this conversation. Um, so the, the picture that was posted up with this event today was not from Victoria or from Melbourne. It was a photo uh, taken in, in Tokyo a few years ago and Chris and I had discussed this going back um, late last year. But one of the things that really stands out about... Um, sorry, in Kyoto, the, the photo was taken. One of the things that stands out about the central neighbourhoods of Kyoto in terms of health and, I suppose, equity is... You know, it's it's a city that has its density, it's transport orientated and it's designed. But one of the things that for me really stands out is when you when you use the roads in Kyoto, there's a level playing field between pedestrians, cyclists and cars. And the distance of the streets are such that you get this level of respect and slowness in moving through those areas. And it, it's it's perhaps a harmony that we, we don't seem to be able to achieve here in Australia. We can look at the... Seg we segregate our transport uses and we can change the hierarchy to move some higher or lower but we struggle to have this concept of perhaps breaking down some of those conventions that are really uh, prevalent in Australia. So I think to, to throw back to you guys with another layer of complexity, are there some, some fundamental aspects of the Australian development paradigm that are holding us back in actually progressing this conversation beyond sitting here in M Pavilion and continuing to have a tale of two cities? Where do you start? I know, but it's where my head's gone. <laughs> well, it goes back to density and lack of transport. There's also not... Um, when you speak about hierarchy, it's not particularly obvious or legislated in any way that it's really pedestrian, cyclists, then cars, <laughs> vehicle vehicles. Um, cars put themselves first, and when you're up against a four-wheel drive with a very angry driver in it and you're on a bike, there is nothing more scary. And I've been in that situation myself, um, and I think Claire's had a few run-ins as well. So it, you can't fight that, and you lose. If a car hits you, you're dead, and there's nothing you can 
there's no comeback from that final destination. So I think we need to have greater awareness that if we put in a hierarchy in place, that it is pedestrians first because they are on their feet, uh, then cyclists. And then it could be the case that certain streets become uh, cycle highways, so you have complete separation from cars to, um, to cyclists to minimise road injuries. So I think that's one issue. But I think it goes right back to density as well. We still have these really low densities, and that, that's what, in a lack of transport, that's what forces people into cars. Our cities are huge. The size of Singapore fits inside Melbourne. Singapore is something like 7,000 square kilometres, something like that. And Melbourne's something like 10,000 square kilometres. We can fit a whole island, a whole country with 6 million people or more in it in the size of, of Melbourne. It's phenomenal. And we're not a captive audience. In Singapore, they are. They have to rely on public transport to get the masses around. We don't, and that's a problem. But they don't have a choice. Well, they cannot expand. Saying. That's yeah, what I'm saying. So it's a very we, different we, situation. Very different context that we're working with. And they've gone up. We've got the privilege of going out, but it's, that's a mistake. May I just jump, yeah, just quickly jump in. Uh, I like to annoy people with reality. Um, <laughs> if you look at urban planning, we all talk about, yeah, we have to create walkable neighborhoods, cyclable neighborhood. But just think about the last 50 years, uh, especially in Europe, North America, Australia, are there any examples of more density? Probably not, isn't it? After the second world, the way cities were developed, it's all pretty much low density. If you go to the outskirts of Paris, um, yeah. post-World War II, big shortage of housing, rebuilding, I mean, we did some of the most outrageous high-density housing, and now we're dealing with, like, massive social crisis, violence, um, mental health crisis going over the chart. Um, so, yeah, we've built some high-density. Um, didn't quite work out. Um, and, again, that's because it wasn't really conceived with the idea of people who live in it. It was more like a sort of pragmatic mechanical solution, but we kind of forgot that humans have needs, um, which is a bit of a shame, I would say. Yeah. So I think, you know, examples of high-density development are probably left some scars. Um, and, and we're learning, like, slowly how to do density, density well. Um, and it's a, it's a difficult thing to achieve when the cars become such an important thing because it allows us to live further out and we value low density as like a lifestyle. So. May I just ask you, I'm not an urban planner. I got into urban planning 10, 8 years ago. Um, but I'm just wondering, it's all about urban planners are obsessed with inner city European cities. They, as if they, they want to emulate the Paris, Barcelona, Copenhagen. Um, I'm just wondering why is it that they don't really look more into Asia? I mean, if, if I mean, there are examples. You can, Japanese cities, uh, the development in China, you can complain about that because it's a communist country. I accept that. You look at Singapore, Seoul, all developed after the Second World War, pretty much. All of them high density developments with transportation links, car ownership very low. Again, it's a top-down approach, but it works. 
uh, it's very yeah, expensive to own a car in most of the cities. So people don't have choice. So it's, it's a bit of social engineering that they've been doing, but this seems to work, and it's high-density developments, uh, transportation links are great, connections. That's the difference, though. I think that's the point of difference with Australian cities, is that in a lot of those Asian cities you've mentioned, so Hong Kong, Singapore in particular, it's true that it's unbelievably expensive to own a car in Singapore. They have a different pricing mechanism to ensure that people are financially hit when they own a car. So it's an auction pricing system just to have the right to own a car and to drive it. Um, and that, that fluctuates. And we're talking $60,000, $80,000 just for a piece of paper. That's before you buy the car. It's very expensive. But the difference is they provide the alternative, which is public transport. Their networks are phenomenal, and it's because they have a captive audience. They've gone up, and they can't go out. Up to a point, they are reclaiming land, which is The odd. planning is just very different. Even if you look at Tokyo, just look at the history of development of Tokyo, and people cycle a lot. You just look at the stats um, uh, in terms of cycling to train station and cycling to supermarkets, the same thing. The way they structure this, they created activity centers along the train lines. And it's the same what Singapore has been doing. And now they're even doing more. They're really emulating uh, Japanese cities. So you have those train stations redeveloped with activity centers, all the supermarkets, medical doctors, everything is there. Almost everything within walking distance. If, if not, they have so many buses. It's all connected. You don't have to wait for half an hour to catch the bus, like here in Melbourne, or longer. It's not the case. So, so many opportunities and people decide. They look at the budget, it's too expensive to own a car, um, you have great transportation links, and it works. But, but I think, you know, you also have to, to be careful when you, like, you cannot copy-paste what worked somewhere else. I mean, the context is so different. The geography is different, the constraints in terms of, like, land available, politics, history, um, heritage, and all that stuff. I think there are lessons to be learned from sort of like governance, or good planning, good architecture, good design technologies, good transport. But we have to invent our own version of it, something that works for us. Um, there's some interesting comparison studies that have been done, and I can think of one that Mel Lowe is behind the definition of livability. She looked in her PhD at the city of Portland in the US, which is often compared to the city of, of Melbourne. Um, the climate is not exactly the same, but it's quite mild as well. And what Portland really does better than Melbourne that came out of his study is that they have a city authority. So Melbourne is famous for pushing out plans all the time. We invest a lot of time and effort in doing a plan Melbourne that goes into a drawer and then we do another one. The city of Portland has an authority that is completely independent of any political power. So it doesn't follow the political cycle. Because I think that's one of the big issues here that I've observed is that every five years, here comes another election, election year, nothing gets done in government because everyone's freaking out about the re-election. Like you always have those sort of thing and that stops any sort of project. It takes more than five years to achieve good outcomes. And I think you need to have this independence to really guide the city and to make sure that this plan that was designed is actually implemented. Otherwise, it's just become redundant and we draft another one again that kind of follows another political agenda. I think that's a, a, probably a really good point to finish on. Um, so if you'd all like to join me in thanking our panel today. Um, 
Now, we were going to leave a bit of time for questions, but I'm conscious some of you probably have to get back for various things. But um, perhaps if, if we're willing, maybe just one or two questions from the audience. Um, anybody? Um, this one's really one for everyone. Obviously, there's a lot of big challenge that face creating healthy, livable neighbourhoods, particularly in growth areas. But I'd love to know if there's any quick wins we can look for, like the low-cost, simple design fixes that could have a large impact on the design of new neighbourhoods. Yes. <laughs> uh, connecting up the walkways. So um, developers are required to put in walk footpaths or walkways, but they're not always joined up very well to other areas. So um, in the Truganina, in the Allura estate in Truganina actually, there happens to be a creek smack down the middle of it and there's no walkways across it. So when you're actually measuring um, the street connectivity in Allura, um, it's accurate to what we have, but it only works when the streets are actually connected and there's no connection between all of the streets. And this, this is, that's one example that I can tell you because we're looking at it very specifically at the moment. But the same is true in um, the southeastern suburbs, so back towards Slander Rise. If you've got a development that's made by one developer and there's another developer next door, those streets aren't always connected up. So it might be that could be a quick and easy win to, do, to join up those pedestrian walkways and allow for cycleways as well. That gives you more active transport connectivity, which then links people back to those important places where there's activity centres and so on. I guess the other one I can think of is also to be more creative with uh, providing services. Like, you don't have to build a school, per se. It can be houses and then host a school in there. Like, you know, you don't design the building for one purpose, but be more versatile about your building so they can start by being a school and then as the suburb develops, it becomes a health centre. And, you know, the city of, um, of Christchurch in New Zealand just demonstrated that after an earthquake, you can come back with shipping container and you can create a vibrant city centre. So why don't we do that into our outer suburbs rather than wait for 20 years to get something? Like, we've got all, all it takes. I figure I should say something really quickly. Um, I, just building on that, the, the, the free thing that we can do is be imaginative, highly imaginative completely imaginative about how we do what we do. That's for free. <laughs> you know, you've all got brains. We've all got the ability to think about a future that we want. That's the first step to things being different. The second bit is actually sim really simple. is planting a lot more trees. And that's so... It's so clichéd, but... It's not, a, it's not easy. No, it's and it's and surprisingly because, because not easy. Because <laughs> sometimes residents don't want to have trees. Yeah, for that's variety right. of reasons, believe it or not, yes. But once we've in in once we've sparked their imaginations, they might think differently. But I think there's a really simple um, fundamental that when we create environments like the one we're sitting in now, again, you know, it encourages you to get out. And I think shoving more trees in the ground and shoving services out of the way to make room for those trees to grow over time could transform new neighbourhoods as they're built in the inner city and, and growth areas. They're complicated, trust me. <laughs> Don't tell me that. Yeah. Um, quick fix, are you talking about two, three years? Is that quick? Local government, that's very quick. Two, three years. Um, I'm just by looking, Wyndham, 
Uh, it's a good example. Uh, the, what we can do, and we are doing it, revitalization of major activity centers, Werribee, Town Center, and Hoppers Crossing. If, if you look at Hoppers Crossing at the moment, really not an appealing place. Um, and the designers are working on that to really recreate that around the uh, train station, create major activity centers with different services, employment, and this is what matters. And on top of it, uh, we are looking into trackless trams to create that, which would be fantastic to connect the different activity centers. And uh, I think this is what the local government can do and be a bit more creative, and that certainly helps uh, in terms of health outcomes for the residents. Sorry. So uh, maybe we can just perhaps finish there. I'm conscious we're a little bit over time, but um, thank you again, everyone, for coming out today, and um, hopefully a few points to take away with you and enjoy the afternoon. Cheers. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.